Good morning. I'm Mike Franklin. I'm pastor of ministry and administration here, which just makes means me I'm the operations guy. So I get to do this occasionally, and I, if you'll notice in the topic in the way I said it weekly this morning, it was humility, and it's a really good sermon. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got that humor. I was worried about that all week, because um, let's face it, how do you preach about humility? You have to constantly ride that line of false humility, like, well, it's not that, you know, I... I'm not Kevin Meyer who does this every week, or you know, I'm not really a preacher guy, or, or pride where you go, well, yeah, I kind of am good at this, and I, I have some skill set that uh, pays off for you guys today, so glad you're here for your sake. And so it, uh, it runs that ridge of saying, well, where, how do you do humility, and what do you use for examples? Do I sit and go, yeah, I saw you know, Jeff, he's a humble guy, and uh, well, his wife might not think that, his kids might not think that, his neighbor might not think that, but I, my experience is, yeah, that person's very humble. So how do you use examples? Who do you pick from? So I'd like you to settle on the, chance, on the agreement today that there's a pretty good chance this is the best sermon you'll hear on humility, humility all morning, and we'll go with that. It also is a little unique for me because I did, my last sermon I did was last Labor Day, and that was part one of a two-part series. And so today you get part two. Part one, of course, is available on the Why Is That a Sermon Player? If you'd like to look that up, if you're motivated to do that after you're done today. But, um, and I've shared before that I really enjoy preaching on Labor Day because part of it is, if you're associated with school system at all or Minnesota summers, it really, Labor Day is really a transition weekend. It's just one of those times where I, we can stop and say, okay, what is my year going to look like? We can set some goals. We can adjust some things. We can look at, okay, how am I doing in these different areas of my, my life? And we can also, um, it's a chance to kind of set priorities reflecting those things. And that's why we offer new classes. That's why we do all the, the programming we do, because we really want to give you an opportunity to say, boy, I could benefit from some parenting stuff. I could benefit from some deeper understanding of who I am as a person, all of those things. And so uh, I, I love this time. I also, I started working at Wise Free Church on September 1st, 1989. So for those of you that like your math to be done by other people, which is fine, that's 24 years. So today I'm starting my 25th year at Wise Free. So thank you. And I have to humbly say, I'm, you know, I'm still excited to be here for my 25th year. So, um, but it is neat for me to look, and it, it really is a kind of stake in the ground to say, how am I doing personally, and where am I at with ministry, and where am I at with relationships, and all of those things. So, so as we uh, begin today on our part two of the two-part sermon, let's uh, pray. Lord, I just thank you that you are an awesome God. I thank you that you um, bless us with such great uh, weather in this time of year, and just the opportunity for us to have a weekend to of play and, and recognizing uh, Labor Day and the significance that that is. And, and Lord, I pray that you would um, really speak to us today. Be with us as we um, delve into your word and, and try to understand how that relates to us in a relationship with you. In your name I pray. Amen. So as with last year, I'm using 1 Peter 5, 5 through 10 as the, uh, as the passage. And don't worry, you didn't miss a whole lot if you didn't hear last year. And that's not a humble thing. It's just, it's two parts. It's two separate parts. Uh, but it starts with, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. All of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another, because God opposes, opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. 
And this, uh, the starting in verse 7 is where I was speaking about last year, was cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And we just talked last year about the um, casting your cares, and we think about casting, I think about casting as a fishing pole, and I use the illustration of you throw the fishing pole and bring it back. That isn't what God's talking about here. God is talking about casting his cares like a javelin, where a javelin throws it as far as he can to get it away from him, and he doesn't want it back just to, to get that away. And, and to be understand that, that Satan has a role in that and those dynamics. And as part of that casting your cares and understanding who you are, humility is strongly connected with those things. Because you have to humble yourself to be able to say, God is, is big enough that I can cast my cares upon him. God is big enough that he has some power that I can have access to. God is big enough that he's a God that I want a relationship to, we're with. And so if we look at humility, we start with the what and why of humility. What's, what, what's the definition of humility? So you go to the internet and, and um, dictionary.com says, a modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance, rank, etc. And then I heard a, a speaker named John Dixon talk about humility. He's a theologian from Australia that I'll refer to a little later as well. But his definition of humility, which should magically appear behind me here, the noble choice to forgo your status and use your influence for the good of others before yourself. I love that definition. The noble choice to forego your status and use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Because even biblically, our status is, if you have a relationship with God, you are a child of God. He died for you. You have a relationship with him. You have, you're an heir with Jesus to everything that God um, has and, and the blessings that he gives. And we're, um, we are foregoing our status and using the influence for the good of others. I love that picture of what that is. And so as we look at humility, we need to realize that God tells us to do that in this verse, in multiple other verses, and it clearly fits into what I call God logic, how God works and he, he looks and he, how he set it up. And you've heard Kevin Meyer talk about that a lot through this summer. Um, you've heard, you heard uh, Peter Kastner uh, speak last week. with um, He talked about the tov, which is a Hebrew word, of just kind of the presence of God and, and the blessings of God, and that definition is up there as well. And so Peter Kastner spoke last week, and he speaks a lot in, from Genesis about that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And that nakedness goes beyond just this physical state to opening your hands to God and saying, I, everything I am, who I am, is transparent before you. Who I am and what my needs and desires, I, I open my hands to you. I don't hold anything back. I'm not hiding anything from you. And I love that picture because that's where humility starts to make sense. When we experience God and we come into his presence and we start to say, this is who, that, who God is and this is who I am. And I, it's, it's vital for us to understand kind of what and why of, of um, humility, but it also impacts our perspective. And our perspective is damaged by our human limitations. We're sinners. We're physically limited. That affects our, our, hum, our humility perspective. Our entitlement perspective affects that. Our entitlement, you know, everybody gets a trophy. We, should be, we deserve this. Affects our humility. Our desire to get our own way. This would be my wheelhouse when we work into those lists of saying, yeah, I like it that way. 
I don't know that I like it the other way of humility and what God calls us to do. And our cultural confusion, that I would encourage you that one day tells you you're the greatest thing ever, and the next day tells you you're worthless, all in the same conversation, depending on who you're talking to and what the conversation is about. And that struggle of saying, boy, that, that impacts my perspective. And I love when I think about perspective of talking about optical illusions. Because optical illusions are truth. They are up there. And yet the way your mind focuses that and the way your, your um, eyes focus and transitions into your mind, it limits you. And so we have some optical illusions this morning. So when you look at this, those lines are straight. They are parallel with each other. If you come across here, those are straight lines that are parallel. I promise you, I sat in my office with a piece of paper going, no way, that, seriously, that can't be straight. And doing that. And yet our mind, the way it works at, most of us anyway, and if you look at those and go, yeah, those are parallel, you either have had experience with optical illusions and you just know that's the right answer, or your mind works better than mine does because it looks like that. And then another one, as many times as I look at that and I've seen this optical illusion over and over and over again, there's no way A and B are the same size. And yet A and B are the same size. It just doesn't make any sense. And the next one? You look at that, and which, which line ma matches with the If you draw a straight line from the black, which one does it go to? Red would be the answer because you've seen this before. <laughs> but optically, it looks like that blue one is in there. But again, I'm seeing my office with a piece of paper. And then my favorite one, the last one here, I'm telling you those guys are the same size. And I took a piece of paper on my computer and said, there's no way those guys are the same size. But they are. And it's all about how our mind works and the limitations that we deal with. And that's a huge perspective issue for us when it comes to humility. Because we see things and we think this is the way it works. And it isn't. And so we have to get more information than just what comes across our mind or our eye. And we're back to John um, Dixon, the theologian. He talked a lot about this. And, and he says the similar things to um, Jim Collins, who wrote the book Good to Great, who is a fairly popular business um, book. He talks about a level five leader. Is there's, there's five levels of leadership. The level five leader, the distinction is they're humble. And draws that distinction of humility and talks about that there's a point where that's fairly attractive to people. And we have to challenge, I think, in, the, in our culture to say, well, wait a minute. Is humility really attractive? And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And John Dixon talks about that. And he says... We are more attracted to the great who are humble than the great who know they are great and want us to know it. I, I think that's a true statement. If somebody is great and knows they are great and wants us to know it, that's not as appealing as somebody who's great and is humble. And then he talks a lot about history and where did humility come from? What, where was that an emphasis? And in ancient Greece and Rome, which is the time that um, Jesus showed up, humility was seen as servitude. It was associated with defeat. And it was a weakness. And a humility, according to John Dixon, a humility revolution took place in the middle of the first century when a teacher showed up and started teaching other things. And uh, Mark, uh, Macquarie University did some research as a secular institution, and they did some research on when did humility become kind of an attractive thing versus a, a limiting thing and a service thing. And they identified that as that showed up when Jesus came. And said, whoever wants, to serve, who wants to, whoever wants to be great must serve. And he goes on to say, more than the teaching, it was his actual crucifixion that challenged people's perspective. Because the crucifixion was the ultimate punishment, it was the lowest form of punishment. Crucifixion is not what you do to kings. 
It's what you do to thieves, what you do to scum of the earth people, the people you don't like and are not impressed with. And Jesus did that. And so according to Dixon, the problem is Jesus is great. Crucifixion is not great. How do we put those together? And then he has some great phrases. He said, the people in the first century, and I would argue we as well, have to continue to ask the question, do I have to change my definition of greatness to fit a cross into it? If the greatest man ever was willingly sacrificed on a cross, then greatness, greatness must consist of willing sacrifice for the benefit of others. And then he goes on to say, the first text in history, and I'm not a historian or a theologian, and I don't have any idea if this is true other than Nixon is saying that, and people that I respect respect him. He said the first text in history to connect greatness to humility is Philippians 2, 3 through 8. When Paul says, uh, and I'll start in verse 3 there, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so if we're looking at God setting that foundation of saying, humble yourself, and then we look at, okay, what perspective do we have to have? Paul's laying that out and saying, this is what you do. Look at Jesus. This is how you do it. This is what humility looks like. This is the value system. And Dixon claims this is the first documented thing that they could find in, in literature that says humility is a great thing. And so God, Jesus not only changed that in the Bible, he changed that in the culture. Because even we have people in business models saying the level five leadership is, is the humility. That's something that is appealing on some level. So if God laid that foundation and we are adjusting our perspective, we also have to deal with the tricky balance of the messages that we get. Because even in the Bible, the Bible says we are like a vapor. It says we are sinners and don't deserve God's relationship, and we deserve death. Well, that's not a very good message. And yet the Bible, when you look at that, says things like we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God sent his son Jesus to die for us. Those kind of things. And we're heirs to Jesus because we're children of God. And so oftentimes we have dual messages coming from our culture and coming from our families or people that say, yeah, you're valuable, but you're not really valuable. And so as we deal with that, we have to deal with the balance. And the, and the Bible, I think, is clear in saying your value oh, is because God did those things for you, because you can have a relationship with God, not because of who you are. Even human, humanness. We have attributes and giftedness that we, some of us are great strategists. Some of us are great CEOs. Some of us are great compassionate people. All of those things. And the reality is, we are good at some stuff. There are some people here that are great strategists, great CEOs, great compassion. My personal illustration is, lately I've been struck with the fact that I have this gift of, when I go into a closet, I take like almost a photographic memory of that closet. Yeah, that's weird. You can respond to that. I don't have that skill in any other thing. I don't read that way. I could, you know, you ask me about the message a month from now, I could probably give you the main points and the philosophy, but I couldn't do the, I don't have a memory of that or a picture, photographic memory. But with closets, if you come to me and say, you know, do you know where that yellow little piece of thing that came off the side of the thing is? I'll go, yeah, that's in C104 closet on the third shelf on the left side. 
But when you think about it, it's kind of cool. So when I look at that, I can look at that and I start to say, well, I do that better than lots of people. In fact, I may be the best closet person in this room. But I'll sit here and say, Beth Moorhead will come forward in a little bit and do, do um, communion with us. Beth is one of the most compassionate people I know. She has a gift of counseling and prayer that I, I'm a pastor. I went to seminary. I grew up in a Christian church. I preach and... I, I don't have any of those things the way that Beth has those things. Not Beth probably doesn't do closets like I do closets. So, you know, it's kind of a horse apiece. But, but we start to say, we start to say, what are the things that are valuable to us? And we use ourselves as a measuring stick. Now stop, you're going to make me laugh. <laughs> this is serious thought. But the problem is, the trouble becomes when we use ourselves as a measuring stick. Because as soon as I say, I do this well, and that person does that better, then I'm, I'm less valuable. Or I do this well, and that other person doesn't do that as well as I do. Well, I, I obviously have more skills than they do. And we pick and choose, and we use ourselves as a measuring stick. But we also then move right into comparison. And, we, and the Bible tells us that, you know, uses an illustration that God is the potter and we are the clay. And so God made us the way that we are. And so one of the tricky parts about us using ourselves as a measuring stick is we oftentimes take credit for stuff. Like, I'm really good at closets because God made me good at closets. I didn't study closets. I didn't work at that. I just, it's just something that works. And I've literally had people ask me, why do you know whatever is in every closet in the church? I don't know. I just do. Well, that's because God made me that way. So am I taking credit for that? Or am I devaluing that? And so I brought a couple pieces of clay that turned into actual things. And so I have a small cup that's a little more rough. A junior in high school made this. And when he came home, my son showed us this, and we were super impressed. Now, it could have a little bit to do something that Brinkman family, not known for their creative artistic ability. They do closets, not art kind of thing. And so it's a little rough, the painting, you know, the paint doesn't quite match the bottom and the, and the handle kind of is clunked on the bottom. And, but we're super impressed. And we're, we think that was the greatest thing. And then you say, well, wait a minute, that's smaller than this other thing I just broke. Um, this is smaller than this big thing. So this has got better value. And look, at it's much more attractive in coloring. It will hold more water. It has more function. And I look at that and I say, yeah, but I, this is a special place in my heart because my son made this. And when we look at that and we say, you know, this is me making closets, or not making closets, evaluating closets, and this is Beth Moorhead who's compassionate and gifted in prayer and all those things that I can't do, it's easy for me to say, I don't have any value. Or it's easy for me to say, what I can do is hold just a little bit of water, but I can drink out of it. This one's harder to drink out of it, so it has less. We do that, and we filter that all the time in our heads. And we use that optical illusion to say, these are the good things, these are the bad things, or vice versa. This is good, and this is bad. And we love to compare. And the reality of this is good because this is the intended product that my son made. This is good because this is the intended product of the creator of this. That wasn't my son. It was somebody else. So we can look at that and we say, God made us, one of us is a small cup that's not as nicely painted as the other one. 
God made some of us as a pitcher. Some of us made huge pitchers. Some, some of us God made to sit in the, in the foyer of a lobby where people come in and go, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. And we have ultimate differences, but, but when it comes down to it, it boils down to it, are we using ourselves as a measuring stick, and are we doing comparison? Because that's the balance that's really tricky. And so if God gave us a foundation for understanding that, it's a challenge for us with the perspective. It's also a challenge for us for balance. Where am I good and where am I not? Because we have skills. We have things that are worthy to say, that's a good thing. So how do we do that? Well, we look at God first. And so Isaiah 6, you saw some of the, um, the verses run through earlier. I heard an audiobook a couple weeks ago where a guy was talking about Isaiah 6, and he pointed out, and I'm just going to read Isaiah 6. So this is, um, Isaiah is a prophet from the Old Testament, and he uh, has this vision of coming into God's presence, and this is that description. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was seated on his throne. His long t- robe filled the temple. He was highly honored. Above him were seraphs, which are kind of like angel type of angels. Each of them had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with the two wings, they were flying. They were calling out to one another. They were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord who rules over all. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices caused the stone door frame to shake. The temple was filled with smoke. So picture this. Isaiah is a human walking into this presence of God, seeing angels flying around, and God's, the, the sound was shaking the door, and the smoke was filling the room. And you know what the response is? Not self-promotion. If I'm in that state, I'm not walking up going, God, that was really cool, that's awesome, and I'm kind of good at closets. We're falling on our knees, and we're saying, oh, no, and we're, our response is going to be like, Isaiah, because everybody in the, in the Bible that sees an angel or sees God show up, immediate response is, I'm a dead person. I can't be in God's presence, as sinful as I am, and have him respond to me. And that's Isaiah's response in verse 5. How terrible it is for me, I cried out. I'm about to be destroyed. My mouth speaks sinful words. And I live among people who speak sinful words. Now I have seen the king with my own eyes. He is the Lord who rules over all. Not a real self-promotion response. It's an awe response that says, God, you are amazing. And then in verse 6, a seraph flew over to me. He was holding a hot coal. He had used the tongs to take it from the altar. He touched my mouth with the coal. He said, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away. Your sin has been paid for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. He said, who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am. Send me. So how do we... How do we do that humble thing? Well, we have to know who God is. We have to experience him and be in awe of his significance. And we have to value a relationship with him. Because humility is not just biblical or moral principles. Peter talked about that a little, week, a little bit last week. Of just The Bible is not a list of moral principles that we, as long as we follow, we're in good shape. So humility is not something that God says, be humble so you can be humble. It's be humble So you can understand the relationship that we have. Understand that I am God and the creator, and you are the clay and the creation. And as we understand that and understand that that's about a relationship, humility is simply a way to remove hurdles for that relationship, a way to pursue that relationship, a way for us to put ourselves in a position of coming to God with open hands and saying, God, I'm holding nothing back. I'm limited, I'm human, I have these struggles and this sin but I know you sent your son to die for us and for me. 
And so I come with a humble heart. And that allows me to cast my cares upon him. It allows me to be aware of Satan's messages. It allows me to be lifted up because I've experienced a relationship with who God is. So all of that, if we conclude, uh, I had a friend send me a, a thing from, and I should give you the name just so I can be authentic here, Sylvia Gunther, Gunter has a, a blog or a, a webpage called uh, from, the, from the Father's Business and talks about praying through Psalm 9. And so what that, a person, a ministry leader went to a seminar about, you know, how do you um, do leadership from a secular perspective? And the, and the message was, you've got to take care of yourself because nobody else is going to. And he looked at that and he said, well, how does that compare with the Bible that says, you know, if I, God says, if I'm going to lead you, then I've got to lead. If we're going to have a relationship, I'm in charge of that. And you follow and I bless and we interact with that. And so he went and he said, okay, uh, I have lots of things. He was a missionary, he was changing positions and doing all these details. And so he drew a line down the middle of a page and said, okay, I'm going to put down my part and God's part on a piece of paper. These are the things I have to worry about and these are the things God has to worry about. And this leader said, you know, once I started thinking like that, it was ridiculous for me to put more than a few things on my side. If we have illness... I can worry about that or God can worry about that. And so he went through and he said, as I started with that perspective and with that balance, I realized, and with that foundation of humility, I realized that it really is about God blessing me with these things, with me coming to God and casting my cares upon him because he cares for us. And then this person went on to look at Psalm 9 and went through and just divided that Psalm 9 and said, I'm going to identify that as my part and it's God's part. And so as, in conclusion, I'm just going to read through this a little bit. Psalm 9 says, starts with, you'll see the heading, my part. Those are added. That's not in the Bible. It says, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High, Holy, o Most High God. So my part is to praise him, to come into his presence, to be glad, rejoice in him. That's why we've talked about the lighten up stuff all summer. My role is to experience God in a joy and a blessing and, and sing praises to him. And then God's part, and I'm going to cruise through these three, verse 3 through 9 and just give you the headings. So you make my enemies turn back. You uphold my right cause. You judge righteously. You rebuke nations. You um, uproot cities. Um, you reign as Lord forever. You establish your throne. You'll judge the world. You govern the people. You're a refuge for the oppressed. Those are all God's roles. A stronghold in time of trouble. And then we get back to my part in verse 10. I know your name and will trust in you. Our part is to trust in God. Know who he is. Seek him. God's part, he has never forsaken those who seek him. God's part is to be faithful. My part, I will sing praises to the Lord, enthroned in Zion. I will proclaim among the nations what he has done. My part, I'll tell other people about God. I'm going to share that with people. Tell them, sing praises. God's part, he does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. It's God's job to deal with that. And that gives us a ton of freedom. My part in verse 13, O Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death. My part is to pray to God. Bring my troubles to him. Cast my cares upon him. God's part, the Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. But the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted ever perish. Arise, O Lord, let not man triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. And then my part, 
that I may declare your praises in the gates and there rejoice in your salvation. And so clearly a thing like Psalm 9, somebody just took that and said, boy, that, that seems like a my part, God part uh, illustration. We have lots of those things that we can do each day. And I would challenge you to think through that and say beyond that, okay, what, what additional part do I have? What additional part am I having that I think should really be God's part? Or vice versa. And the beauty of that is it doesn't matter if this is the best sermon you've ever heard about humility. Today or through all time. Because it's not about humility. It's about a relationship with God who draws us into his presence. For us with open arms going to him saying, God, I get it. You are an awesome God. And I am the product of your potting hands that created me the way I am created. And sometimes I feel like damaged goods. Sometimes I feel like, boy, look at how impressive I am. But it always comes down to a relationship with God that's awesome and powerful and a true blessing as we seek that.